Welcome to RAGE, the podcast at the University of Denver's Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, uh, otherwise known as IRISE. Uh, I am the show's host, Tom Romero. I'm a professor of law and history here at the University of Denver. I also get to help lead and direct um, all the great and wonderful people from faculty, staff, and students uh, that make up iRISE. RAGE explores the risks and rewards of being a critical race scholar in higher education. The past couple of years has sparked an unprecedented conversation about racial and connected forms of social inequality in an era of black lives, Dreamers, the Flint water crisis, Standing Rock, and vigorous backlash against these movements, everyone is talking about rage in brand new ways. Critical scholarship and public engagement by race scholars and op-eds, blogs, and essays have often been at front and center in these formulations. Yet, in higher education, we have either taken for granted or ignored altogether the emotional, professional, and even physical risks to which race scholars are subjected. Though race scholars have long made enormous contributions to understand, understanding systemic and institutionalized forms of inequality, their work has been marginalized, sometimes silenced, and often ignored. The consequence has been long-simmering collective disillusionment about the campuses and institutions of which we are a part, while the rage of others against race scholars is legitimized and made policy and practice. For this episode, I'm here to talk about such issues with Dr. Mary, Mary Romero, professor of the School of Social Transformation at Arizona State University and affiliate of Women and Gender Studies, Asian Pacific American Studies, and African and African American Studies. She is, she is currently the president of the American Sociological Association, the author of numerous books, chapters, and journal articles. Dr. Romero's research and scholarship on social inequalities and justice incorporates the intersectionality of race, class, gender, and citizenship and links the parallels between domestic gendered race relations and immigration and identifies the continuum between racism against citizens and racism against non-citizens. Dr. Romero, it's great to have you here today. Um, you, like me, grew up here in Denver. Yes. And I wonder if you could tell us, and I think particularly for the listeners of this podcast, anyone who's connected to the University of Denver, um, tell us what that was like, what it was like to grow up in, in, in Denver, um, and particularly at when the Chicano movement was beginning to wane a bit. Um, so I'd love to hear more of your thoughts about what that experience was like growing up here. It was an interesting time to grow up. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I would normally have gone to Lincoln High School, but I went to Cathedral, only for the reason that I didn't want to get um, tracked and I had an older brother and sister that were being tracked. And I had already switched from one public school to a local Catholic school because when they changed the school district and the numbers of Chicanas, Chicanos increased in my school, I went from the very top class to the very bottom of the class, which was a lot of fun. I had met a lot of people, never had to work hard, but somehow as a, fourth grader, I knew it wasn't right. And so I asked my mother if she would send me to, and my parents agreed that they would get the money together and they sent me there. But it was a weird experience because there I was at a Catholic school, there was only one other Chicano student in the classroom, and um, students were very already there. There was so much hate. And I remember um, running for uh, cheerleader in eighth grade and 
getting back to me that students were saying don't vote for Mary because she's a Mexican and we don't want a Mexican representing um, the school. So I never, I usually never told my parents anything because I knew they were spending a lot of money and they had, they were very faithful to the Catholic Church and I don't think they would ever want to have heard what was going on, but it was a constant thing even then. And then when I went to cathedral, it was quite different because it was a very integrated school. And matter of fact, when we graduated, it was a time of change. I would say two nuns and one priest left with us. Okay. <laughs> it, was, it was a challenging time, it was an exciting time. And, but we weren't really that politically involved, we just knew what was going on. I think that at, at high school, what really hit us was the Vietnam War. Sure. And that students that had graduated with us, um, Chicano students again, didn't go to college. Um, We'd get here over the um, loudspeaker, so-and-so's go to the principal's office, and then a few minutes later, hour later, we find out that so-and-so's brother was killed in mm -hmm. Vietnam. So it was, it was that time of, that it was, it's a time of change, because also you had all this activity going on, and I'm so grateful that you're writing about the uh, busing situation and the desegregation laws, because there, there was a big push. There was an enormous segregation, and um, but at the same time, there was a hope that things could change. And when I went to, off to the University of Colorado, there was so much hope. Yeah. There was like every, you know, um, there was n new people. There was a spirit of we're going to change this. You know, we're not going to live the lives our parents did. Uh, our parents made ba enormous sacrifices, but our children weren't going to you know, go somewhere and find out that um, there was no Chicanos in the position of, of authority, positions of power, um, that people weren't going to share their textbook in a classroom with them. Um, and so the experiences we had wasn't going to happen to them. And it, of course we know that that hasn't happened. And I, that's when I realized that, you know, class makes an enormous difference in our lives because um, I'll, when I was growing up, there was no Chicano middle class in, in Denver, and now there is. Yeah. And um, so we're starting to see, you know, their children going to the university. And, and I think that, you know, this pool of, and I don't know to what degree that pool is, like one generation taking over the next generation, because we're so, we didn't have the, the, um, the structure that the African-American community did. The church never supported us. Um, I remember back then, it was Our Lady of Guadalupe, that was the one Catholic church um, in all of Denver that was there for us. If you needed a meeting place, it was your church. Um, it was a place that, you know, we were joyful to go at Christmas time and, and have these events. And the priest was great. I went to Regis College and there were very few of us there. <laughs> and a lot of the, uh, Chicano students were night students, and I was a traditionally aged student, so I knew sort of both, but I was there during the day, and there was no one to eat lunch with or anything. So frequently I'd go over to the Archdiocese, I'm not Archdiocese, but to his home and have lunch with him. And it was, uh, was really um, great to sort of make those connections with the community um, when I was at Regis in North Denver. Uh, tell me a little spatially. You grew up in on the west side of Denver, right? Was no. It? Okay. I grew up in a place that's called um, what they call it. Go 
goat heel or okay. dog. I, I can't remember what they used to call it, but it's um, it's by Federal and Evans, sort uh -huh. of. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's it's an entirely Mexican immigrant community. And if you go a little bit further, it's all Vietnamese yeah. community. Yeah. It's yeah. Uh, Harvey Park neighborhood, uh, which is not not far away, and I and I think. Um, I don't know if you knew. There's there was a lot of homes were built in the nineteen late nineteen forties or nineteen fifties that had race restrictive covenants on them. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> um, but of course, they could no longer be enforced um, after the nineteen nineteen fifties. When my parents bought their my parents bought the house, it was not incorporated into Denver yet. So we didn't have our plumbing wasn't. It was all separate. We mm -hmm. had outside. Sure. Uh, and we there was no. Um, paved streets or sidewalks. Yeah. And so I saw all of that change as I grew up. What about water? Did you have running water? We or? had running water, but not an inside toilet. Okay. Um, I think our listeners, are, and particularly those ones that are connected to Denver and the University of Denver, tell us a little bit about your parents and how they, how they made it to Denver. They're both from New Mexico, mm -hmm. from a small town in, uh, uh, near Mora. Okay. And Mora's uh, in the mountains between Las Vegas and Taos. Um, and my uh, my uh, father came to Denver um, after he got out of the service, and he had taken care of the farm for one of his brothers for a while, um, and he didn't have anything. So he heard from one of his uh, uh, padrinos that they were hiring, and they were willing to hire Mexicans in the factories in Denver. So that's when he came out here, I think in 1950. Okay. And so my parents came out here, and they eventually bought that little house. And then little by little, they just added another portion to the house <laughs> until it was this conglomeration of these uh, these buildings. And yeah, that's great. Um, did your family move back? Did, did family members from New Mexico come to Denver, and then kind of vice versa? Go to New Mexico quite a bit. Yes, I mean, there's. It was that was the only a vacation meant. Getting in the car, driving straight through to New Mexico, mm -hmm. and then staying there for a couple of weeks and coming home. And when my dad was on strike, it was cheaper to keep us kids in in New Mexico than it was to keep us there. So we spent the whole summer there. <laughs> Make, makes sense. Because yeah, Gates went on strike a couple of times when okay. I was a kid. So he worked at Gates Rubber Company, oh, as wow. you know, that closed down. Yeah, right downtown Denver. Right. And my mother worked as a domestic worker. Oh my God. Okay. So very, very connected to an industrial economy, uh, a service economy. Right. Um, that we talked about the neighbors being segregated, the, right. the employment sectors were segregated. And I remember my dad one time coming, he was a very strong union guy. And he came home one day and I was very upset. And I, I was in college at the time and um, I asked him what was going on. He said that he, he didn't want to talk about it, and then finally he told me that he'd been to a union um, meeting and that um, that the person that they put forward to, to be their representative said that they would not allow a Mexican to be um, elected or run for the position. Wow. And it really broke his heart. He was like really, I mean, he put so much into that union. And I felt sorry for him because I he'd worked so hard for that, and yet, you know, I, analytically, I knew what was going on everywhere in the United States, and particularly in the Southwest at that time. Yeah. Um, 
as as you had that experience both growing up and in college, and and I'm really curious. I think our listeners would be really curious about the decision to a to go to Regis or the University of Colorado, and b what was that like? And I sort of think of when I read the biography of of Justice Sonia Sotomayor, and she mentioned her very first night at Princeton as an oh, undergraduate, and what struck her most about that experience was just how quiet it was. It was so different from her upbringing in New York City. Um, and so that is always sort of stuck in my head about um, you know th those spaces literally being so physically dis just removed from our communities. I don't know if there's there's similar sorts of experiences or what you could tell us about being in those spaces. Um, well, I could never afford to live on campus. Okay. So I commute to Regis driving my beatable car, and I did have the opportunity to meet some of the rich students, and basically it was a four-year. Um, winter ski trip for them, and that's what they focused on. Um, and there was a real difference between my life and their life. I was barely, I barely had enough money to buy lunch. I still remember the Wiener Schnitzels had uh, chili dogs for 24 cents on a particular day of the week, and that was the day you know could go and um, count my pennies to try and get through. So you, they had their separate dining rooms and, and so forth, but it wasn't until um, we started meeting some of the kids that lived on campus that we got to sort of know how um, different their backward, backgrounds were from us. Um, and I think that the one thing that that's, um, uh, stayed with me for a long time was in senior year we went to a uh, tribute. We had taken um, a religion class that was mandatory and they knew that most of us students were not into it. So they tried to make it as creative as possible. Um, and one was going to um, look at the uh, churches in New Mexico and um, the, the saints and so forth. I thought that'd be great. And I had never, ever gone to New Mexico as a tourist. Mm -hmm. And I was so angry at my teacher, the priest that was running this, I couldn't believe that he put us in those situations or would allow us to go in the, the churches when people were praying. I was, I was just shocked because I had just, it, it really violated a space that I felt was sacred. Not that I'm religious anymore, but still it violated, you know, people's uh, cultural practices and, and he was just totally ambivalent to them. And I remember, um, couple of students feeling similar to me that white students and we got in the car and we drove back by ourselves <laughs> it was like I can't participate in this one time we ended up on the Indian reservation and they were just getting ready to do their ceremony and they wouldn't allow us off because they'd already started and um, some of the students were talking to the Indians like well my name is a, a sort of TV talk I was like I don't believe this. It was just sort of amazing. So sort of seeing the students that I had accepted as friends being taken into this environment and sort of seeing how they uh, changed really blew me away. Yeah. yeah, it was shocking. Given those experiences, at what moment did you say, I want to stay in these types of spaces, um, institutions for education? And, and sort of make the decision to, to apply to CU and, and other schools? I guess this is the 
uh, reason I believe in the notion of, of biculturalism. I, I knew I couldn't survive if I stayed in those positions. So I've always set up the situation where I, I, I had the skills to survive there, but I also always went, had my community. So like I, when I was at Regis, there was Regis, but then I had North Denver, I had the church, I had um, um, friends that I knew there that were, were very active, um, an older couple, uh, Emilio and Juanita Dominguez, and I used to go talk politics with them, and, and you know they, they became sort of that political family that I needed. That I, um, and then when I was in Boulder, um, I lived in Boulder for a while, and I couldn't survive. I, it was just too much. So I moved to Lafayette, okay. and I got to know the community. I started teaching English as a second language and, and um, um, adult basic ed classes. So I had my place in the community as sort of a work and um, political work, and then I was able to go to, to uh, CU and take my classes and survive. Without it, I, I couldn't have done it. Yeah. I could not have done it. I, the the notion of biculturalism, bicultural, as you described it, I think it, in some sense, animates who you become and what you've done as a scholar. Um, and I'll, I'll say it uh, sort of in even broader terms of if you, you have published award-winning books, you published in law reviews, sociology journals, gender and women's studies, as well as uh, Chicano and Chicana studies journals. Is there something about the nature of your work that makes disciplinary fidelity or, you know, <laughs> and so sort of thinking about, again, the idea of bi bilingualism, biculturalism, um, interdisciplinarity, right? Does it, is, there, is there something about the nature of this work that, that makes staying in one single space hard? Um, and kind of a follow-up question to that is, how did you then navigate that through the different stages of your career? That's really a good question. <laughs> um, and I, I would never have thought about it until you put it exactly like that. I, uh, I went into sociology because I felt it was sort of a, a means to an end. And it was a means to be able to get me to understand um, the large society and to sort of figure out things, and, uh, the racial order of what was going on. And as I was doing it, I would run into other scholarship that was like, whoa, you know, this makes a lot of sense. And I would try and incorporate it. And that was a lot, to large degree, my experience with LACCRIT. It was so far removed, in a sense, from sociology because at first I thought there was a lot of these great ideas I was hearing about and I could see how I could merge them in. But there was also this framework of the law it took me a long time to understand about discrimination and this notion of intent. And intent goes, this goes against everything we think about in sociology in terms of, of the racial order. Sure. Intent, it doesn't even enter the equation unless you're looking at the way in which people are socialized into doing something. Um, and it, the racial order operates in such a way that you never have to show intent because it's it's embedded into this the system that we're living in, and realizing that and working with uh, um, Latino law scholars uh, was really eye-opening to me, and it it made me really I feel like energized about scholarship again and what I was doing, and at the time I was 
I was uh, jumping from um, having been in a Chicano Studies program, moving over to Justice Studies, and I really needed that that uh, background, and that's sort of what drew me. But when I got there, I, I saw other um, gains for my own scholarship. And moving around from so many disciplines, um, to a large degree, has been a survival skill. And because, I mean, um, you don't usually start out in El Paso, Texas, and then end up being the president of the American Sociological <laughs> Association. So it was like going from um, um, University of Wisconsin Parkside to Yale was a big jump. But once I got y Yale on my um, Vita, life, oh, doors open, things change. People that I never even knew knew my name at meetings all of a sudden knew my name and they, they wanted to talk to me. And uh, so it was very different. And then trying to find a um, uh, job that I could negotiate two jobs because my uh, husband is also a sociologist, um, made me not feel any allegiance to anyone. I just, you know, where we could find a job, I could feel I could do my work. However, I was satisfied with leaving justice, to, uh, leaving Chicano Studies because at the time the program was just growing. It was very humanistic and in a way very nationalistic. And I, I didn't want to I didn't want to uh, engage in that kind of scholarship. I wanted to engage in more community scholarship, something that was alive and, and happening, rather than trying to go back to the roots. And um, that just wasn't for me. <laughs> <laughs> I totally understand. It's um, you talked about this arc in, 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 from from sociology to Chicano studies and ethnic studies to President of the American Sociological Association, um, and. I want to talk a little bit more about your, your more recent role as, as President of the American Sociological Association. Um, you made it clear that part of the, what, at least what I've seen in your writings and your public statements is that you want to challenge white supremacy. Yes. Um, and certainly that animates a good chunk of the support for the current presidential administration. When you were elected to be president in, of the ASA in 2017, you gave a paper at that conference uh, called quote, normalizing hate and immigration law enforcement, making America white again. You get direct reference to MAGA and, and making America great again. Uh, as president of the ASA, you have said that, quote, as we f move further into the unsettling Trump administration, the American Sociological Association must be prepared to effectively challenge attacks on tenure and academic freedom in higher education. So I have two-part questions for you here. Um, the first is, what public pushback or private pushback uh, have you received in relation to this, this very public stance as president of the premier association of American sociologists? And um, second, and more precisely as scholars that do the type of work that you do, that, that are in all these different disciplinary spaces that see justice and sort of the honor to justice and racial justice as part of our work, um, how can we effectively repel attacks on tenure and, and academic freedom in higher education? Wow. <laughs> I certainly have gotten attacked, and it has to do with the idea that, um, that I, I am promoting some kind of advocacy, quote, social justice research, rather than doing scientific research, and that somehow I'm pu pushing aside objectivity. And that is to be expected, because if you look 
throughout sociology when you ever have anyone talking about doing sort of applied social justice type work they get accused of, of not being objective and their work as being less legitimate. Um, so that wasn't surprising and I um, am ready to, to, to address that and hope to do that in, in the meetings. And I'm doing it in the meetings by, one, I want sociologists to become more aware that our origin story of sociology in the United States has been told from a lens of whiteness. And if we look at from a lens of Du Bois and his incorporation of the Atlanta School and um, uh, Jane Addams and the many other activists that were involved in the Atlanta School at the time that he started it, there is a tradition that we can also take from there. It doesn't have to be from the Chicago School. And I'm not telling and aren't suggesting that people completely ignore the Chicago School, but also acknowledge this very, very important strain that is in sociology that has always talked about doing relevant research that's going to change and make the world better. And when I ask students why they want to become a sociologist, they want to make the world better. That may not be the answer that uh, we want our PhD students to say. <laughs> Um, of course, they want to be theorists, they want to be, you know, this or that. But um, the, I guess the sociologists I really respect have a real strong sense of social justice and wanting to do research that's meaningful, not for their careers, but meaning, meaningful to um, changing the racial order. And that's very important to me. Um, in terms of the university, um, there's so much cyberbullying that's going on, and um, it's and it, it's an odd situation to be in because on one hand you also have the legislature pulling back so much money, and they're becoming so um, um, careful about uh, news stories and how it's tied to faculty members, and I sort of understand where they're coming from, but at the other on the other side, like I think about Arizona State. They are charging those students from the Arizona, from the state of Arizona, so much money to attend, and um, their statement of the school, uh, from the very beginning, said that it was supposed to be an affordable school for Arizona students. And I think that there's there needs to be a, another way of thinking about the university. And maybe we don't need all these new buildings. Maybe we don't need. Um, um, these special dorms for students, and I, I could just go on and on it's, that I've seen happen over the last 10 years of sure, yeah. ballet parking. <laughs> and and um, it, for some students that go there, it's like a resort center. For other students that are working full time, it's sort of drive-by education. They run in to take their class and they run off to go to, to school. So it's like we're serving these mass, completely different people at the same time. And I think that I, f I feel very strongly that um, we need deans and we need um, administrators that are going to support their faculty, um, particularly faculty of color, because they bring us to their campus to solve the problems that they created. And then they leave us there with no resources um, and not even support. And that's a real, <laughs> um, that, that's wrong. It's, it's shameful. And all of a sudden, I saw, what, 25 years ago, they passed all these uh, diversity requirements. And 
I, when I was at the University of Oregon, one of the reasons I left is because the dean called me in and told me that I was going to teach nothing but diverse undergraduate diversity classes for my the rest of my tenure there because they didn't have anybody else to teach it. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm associate professor. I'm not going to do this. I mean, I don't mind teaching sociology of race, but there's other courses I want to teach, and I want to teach graduate classes. And no white faculty is being asked to teach intro to sociology, for instance, because of their training for the next 10 years of their life. Um, so they're asking us to do impossible things, and they're not acknowledging it, and they're not uh, giving us credit. And I think that the, it's very important for them to acknowledge it on our uh, uh, tenure and promotion guidelines as well, and to acknowledge the kinds of, of service that we are asked to do that white faculty are not asked to do. Yeah, yeah no, that's institutional change and policies and practice, right? right needs to be embedded in right. systems. Right. And that's why I think it's so important for a position like yours. I mean, it's wonderful to see somebody who's very, very committed um, to this uh, struggle and to uh, making um, education accessible to uh, students of color being, a, being in a position of dean. That is so important. Thank you. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna put this again on on, on the camera. Okay. Um, and then I think we have your, your answer, but okay. if, if you want to answer, add to it, please do. Rage is the title of this podcast. And coming out of your previ previous answer, you can see how the rage begins to build up, But at least for me. But what, what does rage mean for you? I can't deal from a point of rage. and I, This is a story that I probably shouldn't tell. But there has been enormous rage. Um, and it happened in the mid-80s. And it happened in Denver. My 12-year-old uh, cousin, 12-year-old uh, nephew, um, was shot and killed. And it was by a white racist. Um, and when I came back for the funeral, and I saw, you know, not only my family, but also his friends, the neighbors, how devastated they were. It happened the day before school was going to start. And they had to bring in counselors and everything. And then I later I came out for the um, uh, trial, and just watching the trial and how um, no one would say say that my family was Chicano or Mexican American. They had to say Hispanic. But when some guy was saying that they that this guy was upset because he heard Mexicans speaking Spanish in this bar, and that's and he kept drinking, and so he was out to kill himself a Mexican. So it was, you know, just the use of word Mexican and Hispanic. It's just, it, it just, ah, just hearing white people say it in the context that they were using it brought me rage. I felt rage when somebody called into the to the courtroom and or courthouse and said that um, they were going to kill um, uh, Clyde Savage, who had killed my my nephew, and. After that, all of us had to go through um, the metal detectors. And seeing my mother and sister going through it like that, it was just, I felt rage again. It was like, what? After everything we've been through, we have to go through this. Having the um, meeting with the lawyer and her t telling the family the night before, you know, you're going to hear this. Make sure you don't cry because then you're going to be, uh, uh, might be accused of, of swaying the the jury and um, explain and 
pleading with my s sister-in-law that when they bring out the, the bloody clothes that Reuben was wearing that day, not to cry. And it was just like, I felt rage. Yeah. And that weekend, when we were in the courthouse, I remember going to the park and seeing a white child. And never in my life have I felt this, but I looked at that white child and I thought to myself, when, how old are you gonna be when you're gonna be a racist? And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> it was like, just everywhere I looked, it was like, all I could see was that the racism that was there and that rage. And it was like, I don't want that rage. I wanna be able to um, channel it into something else because to me that rage is just, is too, it's too deep yeah. and too ugly, and I can't work with it. And I haven't been able to write about my experience for a good, for a long time now because I, it's too painful. It's too painful. When I see what it did to my family, it's too painful. And when I see what it did to his friends, it's too painful. I, I can say, knowing what I know of your scholarship and your activism and your work, you've channeled that into into connecting all those pieces, right, and, and, and being able to speak for the powerless, I think is so important. Um, one final question, and, and the question is anything I may have missed, or do you have any final thoughts, uh, um, perspectives, or affirmations on what higher education institutions can be, can do to be engaged in this type of work, to create scholars like you? I think that there has to be room for a lot of different kinds of people on campus. I don't think that we all can be um, um, outgoing activists and engaged in, in organizing. Um, we also need administrators. And you can't be everything, but you can be a damn good administrator. You can be a damn good teacher as well as providing the kind of support um, for your students to be able to to move them along. It really depends on, you know, the, there's different kinds of institutions and they provide different opportunities and challenges. And I think it takes a variety of, of us in different places to make this work. We need really strong scholarship. Not that I think that somebody engaged in scholarship shouldn't be doing service, but there's different kinds of service. And um, I, some of my younger uh, colleagues, um, see activism and seeing the mission as only um, you know, um, being involved with the teaching in prisons or, or um, uh, protesting or doing this or that. And I have done some of that in the past, but right now I, I feel that in my position, I had, people are coming to me and, and asking me to evaluate their programs to their departments because they know that I will be making the recommendations that they want. And um, they uh, are asking me to write them letters, external letters, um, to be on their tenure and promotion. And I feel like that is the most important thing that I can be doing right now. Um, so I think that it, we have to look at it in terms of a long term, in terms of our careers, what the university is, and, and what the opportunities and challenges have to be. And I think it, it takes all of us, not just one type. Thank you. I think. Um one quick takeaway I would have from that that you articulated is that as critical scholars, we need to have a theory of power. Yes, thank and, you. And, and being able to navigate institutions requires that 
you not only push from the outside, but from the inside as well, and know how, how power is gained and seized. Right. So, so thank you for, the, for those comments. So uh, that is all we have for today. Bye. So really appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. This is wonderful. You've reached the end of another episode of the Rage Podcast, brought to you by iRISE at the University of Denver. Connect with us at www.du.edu forward slash iRISE. While there, don't forget to sign up to our newsletter to hear about our initiative to create new pathways, partnerships to racial justice in Colorado and the Rocky Mountain West.